I said good day, sir. You don't ever plan anything around the eagles because the eagles represent the grace of God. Okay. You heathen bastards. What a vanilla nebbish name. Well, you know, orcs are people too. I'm thinking of that one cult that got taken out with one punch. So he's got a wall, okay. a gall, a gall, and a wall. Every time you mention the eagles, I think Don Henley. <laughs>is a geek history of time where we connect nerdery to the real world. I'm not Ed Blaylock, so unfortunately I didn't say it quite right, but I am Damien Harmony. I'm a Latin teacher, a part-time world history teacher, a union rep, a father, uh, a dog owner, uh, a uninspiring uh, kite flyer, um, and just an all-around uh, affable guy. Uh, across from me is uh, my guest for today. Hi, my name is Ashley Sanders. I host a weekly pub quiz at Yola Brewing called Anyone's Guess. It's every Tuesday at 7 p.m. if you want to come stop by. Also, um, my curls don't bounce when you pull them. I've been told that by strangers before, <laughs> much to their disappointment. Uh, so don't pull her hair without getting consent first. That's <laughs> a problem I don't have because I keep my hair so short that it always just stands up. But actually, when I have shaved my head a few times, uh, one of the gals in the attendance office used to want to touch my hair all the time, which was funny because uh, I, I turned to her at one point. I'm like, don't you normally get this? And she, she started laughing. And, and But my hair was velvety soft, so I couldn't blame her. So, uh, Ashley, thanks for joining us. Um, I uh, wanted to talk about uh, the Dark Crystal. Um, and I figured someone who knew a lot about trivia might actually be able to hang with us on the Dark Crystal while Ed is away on assignment. Um, so I am hoping that you've seen the Dark Crystal, the movie from the 80s. I just recently watched it. Good timing. I, I could not have planned this better. Uh, that's great. This is called The Dark Crystal and the Two-State Solution. Things that make you go, hmm. Oh, Lord. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I uh, <laughs> I really do want someone to come up with a mashup of uh, CNC Music Factory and Chamberlain. So I I when, the first time he did that, mm -hmm. I thought, oh God, I hope he's not going to be a bigger character. Yeah, yeah, and he was. And he so was. That was fun. I actually found uh, somebody decided to loop it for ten hours straight on YouTube. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> so I. I played that in the background one day while my daughter and I were playing, and she just finally looked at me. She's like, how long does this go on? <laughs> it's so fun. Uh, so my daughter's a huge fan of The Dark Crystal. My son also really likes it. Um, he likes Fiskig, that little character that, that's the all mouth. Dog, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Pomeranian, essentially. <laughs> Uh, and my daughter really likes all the different characters. Uh, the TV series came out, so we watched that with our neighbors. And uh, she got a book where it names all the characters. I didn't know if you knew this, but like they had names besides just their their title. Like Chamberlain's name is like Skekog or something like that. Like she could tell me everything about it. But so apparently there's a whole mythology to it. So huh. yeah, it's kind of fun. So uh, what do you know about early 1980s geopolitics? Not much. Would you say that uh, if if you were to learn about it through metaphor, you'd understand it better? Yeah, absolutely. Good. Well, then you already uh, are on the way to understanding because the Dark Crystal is 100% about um, Israel and Palestine uh, trying to come together for a two-state solution. Uh, so uh, without any further ado, let's dive in. So it's December 1982, 
and I am four, almost five years old. Uh, and uh, The Dark Crystal comes out in May- American theaters. It was a, a fantasy movie. Uh, for those people who don't know, it was all Muppets and animatronics. There, there were no people on it unless they were dressed up as these creatures. In fact, uh, the people, like there's a guy inside the Gartham suit. Uh, so there's giant beetle things, right? Mm-hmm. And they, uh, that, that like hurt their backs because it was like 70 pounds worth of gear. So they couldn't be in it for very long. And then the uh, Land Striders, those white things that moved like they were on crutches, that was another dude. Um, and he's just in it. It is pretty cool. So when that when they were fighting, that yeah. was just two dudes toppling. Yeah, as Larry and Ralph beating yeah. each other up. It was, it was good times. It was a lot of fun. Uh, so yeah, uh, Muppets and animatronics, and for its time, it was really, really groundbreaking. Like it, it, even still, like I think it holds together as like a built world. Uh, I think it's in some ways better than CG because there's an authenticity and a weight to it that you can't get with CG. And and like I, I don't know about you, but I notice when there's um, green screens and stuff like that everything is just a little bit too defined and this is a world that like things kind of blended together better mm-hmm. so um the early 80s also saw an explosion of movies that created a universe for us to inhabit uh and that was uh henson's crack at it all right so et and tootsie also came out in the same year have you seen either of those i've seen et not tootsie okay uh tootsie fantastic makeup uh dustin hoffman uh plays uh michael dorothy and then he switches over to playing dorothy michael uh, in this kind of a cool thing. Um, and uh, E.T., as you know, a lot of animatronics, Steven mm-hmm. Spielberg, right? Um, and they were massively popular. So uh, part of this movie's lack of popularity, because it didn't really hit big when it came out, um, you can lay that at the feet of the fact that the field was already kind of saturated. Like, E.T. was a blockbuster. Um, it was really the first sentimental blockbuster in some levels. Uh, that that people saw. Um, apparently, I saw it when I was three or four, um, and it triggered something in me, and I was sobbing the entire way home. <laughs> so, <laughs> my mom told me. Uh, apparently, I didn't like that ET had to leave. So I was working through all kinds of abandonment issues when I was four. Uh, <laughs> Tootsie, I didn't have any such issues. It was nice, um, but uh, it also, to to be honest, um, the Dark Crystal, kind of boring. Yeah, um, and I th- I think the dialogue suffers a little. It seems like they were writing it around the fact that there are Muppets. Oh. So sometimes you'd yeah. see a scene and uh, Jen, the camera's on Jen, and mm-hmm. it's like, it really bothers me that. And then the camera cuts somewhere else, and he finishes the sentence, and it's a lot more verbose than, oh, yeah. than when the camera was on him. There's a lot of... Um, inner monologuing too on God his part damn. yeah oh that was so dull like 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 in comic books that makes sense you have like the, the the box text because the idea in comics was anybody could pick up their first issue as this issue so you have to kind of just reintroduce them to everything all the time and you'd have spider-man swinging through the streets of manhattan talking about everything you just read in the previous comic but if it was your first time reading it it'd catch you up but in this case it's like Oh my God! You know we we kind of know that you're alone because we saw your master die a second ago. <laughs> you don't have to talk about how alone you are. You know. Yeah, I think I think he mentioned his master dying like two or three times. Mm-hmm. And being alone. Yeah. All right. Alone then. And it's like, well, what other option did you have, dude? Like, really? Uh, yeah. So it, it was kind of boring. It was not well written. I mean, it was Jim Henson writing it, um, and actually another guy named Brian Odell uh, doing the screenplay. 
both of which were, I, again, I would say uncreative as far as squeezing exposition into things. It was yeah. very exposition heavy. Um, so no characters really stood out to me either besides being mildly entertaining. I mean, there are some slightly iconic characters, but like they don't really have any depth. Like all the depth seemed to go into making them really interesting looking. Yeah. You know. And Jen in particular, mm-hmm. being the protagonist and the chosen one, uh, is just doesn't really do a lot and yeah. in fact does a lot of stupid things throughout <laughs> the movie. Like what? Uh <laughs> he's just he's told that there's a prophecy and he's meant to save the world and he needs to bring the crystal shard to the dark crystal and mm-hmm. reunite everything and they get attacked by like the beetle guard thing the gartham yeah. gartham and he's got the shard in his hand and he just kind of goes oh, i don't want to do this anymore and then chucks it <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and then they find it immediately the next morning well that that was good for me because i was like um <laughs> does anyone want to go get that <laughs> Yeah, I guess you don't want to be like, oh, God, we got to find the damn thing now. That's yeah. another 20 minutes of exposition. <laughs> I felt bad for throwing it, and I shouldn't have thrown it. And just like the whole way, he's thinking his way through it. So, yeah, yeah it's uh, it's a standard plot. I mean, it really is. It's chosen one, like Hero's you said. journey. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so you had to have that moment where he's like, oh, I don't want it. Mm-hmm. But uh, now the world, while remarkable, was was quite frankly, so busy that the characters get lost amongst it. Like, one of my favorite parts is they're panning across uh, the scene and you have, like, these little berry creatures that are part of, like, the the skin of a, a big rock thing that turns out as a mouth. And, like, really cool ecology, but, like, your main character is dull and bland and gets lost immediately. Like, it's, it's not fun. And doesn't have wings. Well, he's a boy. Yeah. I mean, of course not. He's a boy, silly. You know. It did turn a profit. Uh, it was also the 16th highest grossing film of the year, uh, which I don't know how many films came out that year. I hope the number is greater than 17. <laughs> but um, it did turn a profit. So let's, we can't say that it was a, it was a stinker. Um, and it's actually the second highest grossing Muppet slash puppet movie of all time. What's number one? Uh, the Muppet movie. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a kind can't of a niche that. thing, though, you know? <laughs> yeah, you can't beat the original, you know? It's like second only to wine. Well, what's the best? Wine, you know? <laughs> However, uh, The Dark Crystal, even though it's clearly another example of bearded white guys appropriating what little they know about Eastern mysticism, uh, like in Ed's podcast about the Jedi, if you guys haven't re- uh, listened to that, I encourage you to go back on how George Lucas got the Jedi wrong. Um, it, it is a fascinating look into the Israel-Palestine conflict uh, that was going on from the 70s and 80s. Now, it was going on before that, but really the flavor of it had shifted by the 70s. Um, for a little bit of background, Jim Henson starts writing the story for The Dark Crystal in 1975. Um, I think he snowed in in an airport or something like that. Um, and in 1975, is before I was born, uh, Ed was probably already a teenager, um, but uh, and producer George, I think he'd gotten through college and had a favorite liqueur by that point. Um, but uh, 1975 is two years after the Yom Kippur War. Do you know the Yom Kippur War? I don't. Okay. Um, so uh, essentially, there's a, a high holy day, Yom Kippur, um, and Israel and uh, the six Arab nations around them that they kept fighting with uh, got into another fight, um, and uh, it didn't last long. 
Uh, this is also three years after Munich. Um, there was a movie about Munich, so there's more possibility people would know about it. But essentially, the Munich Olympics, there were uh, Palestinian activists, uh, terrorists, fighters, um, and they basically took hostage a bunch of Israeli um, athletes, mostly a wrestling team, um, and it ended very badly for everybody involved. Most of them were, were dead, I think. Um, oh, it's not Sam Donaldson. It was uh, Peter Jennings. Uh, he's, he's famous for saying they're dead. They're all dead. Uh, it was, it was uh, a lot going on. It's also one year after the United Nations recognized the Palestinians' right to self-determination. Um, so you've got a lot of this tension coming back and forth. Israel is its own state, but the United Nations recognized that a, a group of people, an ethnic group within Israel, have a right to their own determination. And a lot of this is because Israel was created um, out of what was Palestine. Um, back in the 1940s. Um, so uh, the background to all of this is a lot of insurgencies, a lot of attacks from within Israel and from outside of Israel as well um, by various groups that are aimed at either eliminating the state of Israel or aiming at Palestinian liberation. And sometimes even those two goals end up in conflict. So uh, the Palestinians become kind of the, uh, the poster child for um, Arab-Israeli aggressions um, sometimes the Arabs in the surrounding countries are attacking Israel on behalf of the Palestinians, and sometimes they're attacking Israel, claiming that it's on behalf of the Palestinians, but it's not. So that's all happening while he's writing this down. Like, that's the kind of the background fuzz of, of what's going on there. Um, the background to this is also a lot of special forces attacks on the part of Israel. Uh, to uh, to attack small groups of people. Um, they're attacking uh, what they would call terrorist cells. Other people would call them freedom-fighting cells. And that's the problem. Is it's, This is a, a conflict that's very divisive, obviously, you know. Um, but uh, it's, it's a lot of back and forth, a lot of state-sanctioned assassinations, um, a lot of efforts to maintain the state of Israel in the midst of all this occupation or uh, opposition, pardon me, um, so you have a government trying to keep itself in power, trying not to let this insurgency rise up and destabilize the government, also trying to keep itself safe from all the surrounding states that want to topple them as well. And then you've got a smaller group who had their country taken away from them and were made to live in an apartheid state. And then you have a bunch of people who are fighting on their behalf, but not necessarily in the ways that they want. So that's, that's what's going on where he's writing this down. Uh, also, the background to this is a lot of rhetoric um, where one side wiping the other one completely out and refusing to com compromise is, is the stated goal. And that's true on both sides. And they both have holy books to back this up. So it makes it impossible to walk back from in a lot of ways. Um, I wouldn't say it's a crusade, uh, but I would say that uh, there's a lot of um, religious rhetoric about who's supposed to live there, when did God promise it to him, who did he promise it to first, and, and that kind of stuff. Um, also, the background to this is there's a lot of things happening outside of Israel. So the rest of the world can't just ignore it as an internal issue. Because when usually when a group uh, sets it up where they uh, oppress a minority within their own state, the, the United Nations kind of like clucks their tongue but doesn't do much else. Uh, it's only when it starts to get across borders that the UN steps in and says, hey, whoa, 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 whoa let's, let's take a look at this. And actually the UN is refusing to ignore this 
partly because of the escalation of the violence that's happening. Um, there are a lot of mass casualty attacks um, and murders of groups of women and children. And that's happening on both sides. So you'll have one group bomb a bus. You'll have another group uh, bomb a village. And it's back and forth and back and forth. Um, and there's a lot of dissension amongst the various groups that have a stake in Palestine's continued existence, including a lot of murders within the liberation movements of Palestine. So all of that's happening by 1975. Like it's just like layers upon layers upon layers of violence and people so fully committed to their cause that peace is not an option. Peace will only be, in, be gotten after they've destroyed the other person. Henson writes a 25-page treatment, okay, uh, that has flavors of the movie that we've uh, that we've come to love way more than we should. Um, he's also been reading, uh, and here's where it gets fun. He also admits to not understanding what he's read, um, but something called uh, the Seth material. Have you ever heard of the Seth material? I haven't. No. No. Okay. Have you ever heard of New Ageism? Yeah. Oh, okay. Cool. Um, so this is ageism, not um, not a Jism. Okay, just making sure. Um, so uh, that, that was Fred. Um, <laughs> he's kicking me uh, wherever he's listening to this. Um, so the Seth material is a book um, that was written in the early 1960s by a woman named Jane Roberts. Have you ever heard her name? No. Okay. Uh, she claimed to be channeling a male ghost named Seth. Okay, makes sense. Right, like you do. Um, whom she'd met while using a Ouija board with her husband researching ESP for another book. Okay. So I don't know if you've ever done research and you find something really interesting and suddenly you become an expert on bare-knuckle boxing of the late 1800s instead of, like, socialism. <laughs> like, uh, maybe that's just me, I don't know, but, like, she is using a Ouija board and finds this ghost named Seth and, and then he starts telling her stuff and she learns how to channel spirits. And you've, you've heard of channeling spirits or I, well, I have some, uh, stories about people getting, uh, spirits channeled into them. No kidding. Yeah. I've ever told you that, uh, my family practices Santeria. No. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And so we'd all, um, you know, dress in our ceremonial garb uh -huh. and you get in a circle and the ceremony starts. There is um, a coconut shell full of wine that's mm -hmm. passed around. And then uh, the head priestess, we uh, all kind of chant as she waits for her, like essentially a guardian angel uh -huh. to come and possess her. Wow. And uh, now, Santeria, let me just back it up. Yeah. Is this uh, tied to the Loa, like that pantheon, or is this a different thing? It's a different thing. Okay. It's, um, it's an African religion that okay. was disguised as Catholicism. Okay. So, is this Dahomean? Um, I, 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 these are things that I know that are tied to other things. So, again, I could be wrong. So, okay. okay. So it's yeah. disguised as Catholicism. It's disguised as Catholicism, yeah. And so there is like um, a pantheon and they kind of currently correlate with different saints and Catholicism. Sure. Um, and it's just a popular religion in places where there are both Spanish and uh, African influences. A lot of Central America. Um, Caribbean? Caribbean, yeah. Okay. Uh, Anyway, so uh, so yeah, you would know when she was possessed because she'd take a big swig of wine and then mm -hmm. all of a sudden like, spit it out. 
Wow. And uh, start convulsing and, and chanting. And uh, I mean, I, this is obviously, I'm an atheist. So like. <laughs> I, I was, I was going to ask. So, no, no. okay. Uh, so I, I don't, I don't actually uh, subscribe to any of this, but, but she would, you know, start convulsing. And then uh, her guardian angel was a man. Mm-hmm. So once she was possessed, she would, you know, take her skirt off, take off all her jewelry you know, get this woman shit off of me. Wow. And then, then the, uh, the reading, the ceremony would start once she was like possessed. So let me, can I ask you a few questions about this? Yeah. So does it, does there have to be a priestess or is this just within your family? It was a woman who kind of ran the show. Um, it, it's within our family. It was, it was a woman. It doesn't have to be a woman. I don't think, um, it just has to anybody who has like their, a close relationship with their guardian angel spirit and has the ability to be possessed. Okay. Wow. That's, that's a narrowing <laughs> of the field there. So, um, uh, geez, I have so many questions. Um, <laughs> so uh, none of which you're answerable to, but I'm, I'm just genuinely curious. So your family practices. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you have some background in observing it. I often. do. Okay. Yeah. And you don't mind sharing tales out of school? No, I don't. Okay. All right. So does it have to be a male guardian angel? No. Okay. Uh, it doesn't. Um, it could it could be anyone. Basically, just a spirit will latch itself onto you because it likes some aspect about you. Wow. Okay. And at what point, because you said you're an atheist, at what point did you kind of just be like, okay, this is what they do to get down? Like, was that really early on or was that like last year? No, like, it was... Um, it was in my early twenties. Uh-huh. Uh, actually, it was a, it was a big to do. Really? So there was. Um, I don't want to hijack your podcast. No, but... <laughs> dude, this is great. Normally, Ed is talking to me about the history of the samurai by this point, so it's fine. All right, so there's. Um... He's gonna be so mad at me. <laughs> like, there's a bus. I'll throw him under. Of course, when he does his podcast, I'm just throwing in the dumbest fucking puns. So it's. it's and it's I've fine. never met Ed, so this is all like oh, my yeah. first impression. Oh, I'm sure you've seen him though. He's been on our. Uh, uh, capital punishment actually isn't he gonna be uh this month no oh no i, I think that's your boyfriend uh no he's gonna no? be in april oh that's right okay never mind but also not ed ed was uh one of the guys on the teacher episode oh yeah or the teacher Did, were you there for the teacher one no oh man so he was on camera actually he was the guy in the kilt oh i did hear about a kilt yes i've i've yes. heard the legend yeah Never met the legend. Well, you know, he's he's legendary. So, <laughs> all right. So back okay. back to you, hijack. Yes. Go. Okay. So um, so there has to, you you have to be called to the religion. You can't just kind of like jump in, stop in. Okay. Yeah. So um, they like frequently hold these divination ceremonies, and wow. then whatever the gods or the spirits kind of want you to know, they will re- reveal during the ceremony. And so it has to be revealed in a ceremony that it's your time to join. Okay. And, uh, you know, they didn't, they didn't call for me for a long time, uh, all through my childhood and my adolescence. I, I was just never called. Okay. And, uh, then one day my, my early twenties, it happens or they're like, okay, it's, it's Ashley's turn to, to join. And they had kind of been grooming me a little bit for, um, like a, a higher up position and potentially to be like the next priestess. Oh, wow. Um, and I had really long hair in my early 20s because it came out in a divination ceremony that 
uh, I had um, a spirit with me mm-hmm. who likes my long hair. And uh, it was important that I keep my hair long wow. because as soon as I cut it, uh, I would be cursed by the spirit that had attached itself to me. And so uh, at this point when I'm called, I've already kind of made up my mind and, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm coming out of the pool of agnosticism, dipping my toes into atheism and uh, which, which really you're just dipping your toes into like really dry sand yeah because it's, it's not exciting it's like wow i don't believe in anything now this is kind of lonely i well i don't know compared to like everything i grew up with it yeah. seemed very very um oh i bet like almost exotic yeah yeah, yeah. wow uh, that's I, I get a kick out of that. Okay, so I grew up um, mostly atheist, or I don't I don't consider my parents to have been agnostic or atheist so much as apathetic. Uh, so, uh, but I I you know dipped my toes into religion for about a season, and then I was like, oh, not for me. Um, and and then it was like I'm just I'm an atheist, and I would argue with people because I was just a dick and I like to argue. But uh, but by and large, it was it was so much not a part of my life, like. Like, it just wasn't a thing that existed. It's like, you know, I don't go to conventions. I don't, you know, do you not believe? Yeah, me either. Why do we dress up again? I don't know. (laughs) You know, like that kind of thing. Like, I didn't go to any of that. I just, it was just never a part of my life. So it's just fun to hear you go from a family that practices Santeria to, and then I got into atheism and that was exotic. Like, it, kind of, it kind of was. I get it. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It was scary for me <laughs> to kind of leave um, my family behind like that in a mm-hmm. way. Um, oh yeah, by the time I was called for, uh, I tried to talk to my mom about it and tell her mm-hmm. I don't really, I don't believe believe in any of this stuff, and yeah. I I don't really want to do the ceremony because it costs money too. Oh. It costs a lot of money. God damn it. Oh, yeah. It's, God damn it's, it. There's, of course, yeah. I was, I was hoping that it wasn't going to be some version of, like, uh, evangelicalism. Yeah. Or, yeah. I yeah. don't want to say a cult, but it's, you know, there's money involved. So a lot, yeah. of, a lot of money. And so wow. I told my mom, you know, I, I really don't want you to save all this money. It could be better spent somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want to do this ceremony. And my mom was just not having it. She, really? Yeah, you don't have a choice. Now, uh, how old were you? You said early 20s. Early 20s, yeah. So, in college yet or? In college, living at home. Okay. She, yeah, she's wow. like, you don't you don't have a choice. It's you've been called and and that's that. And I, I kept trying to, you know, <laughs> tell her nicely, like yeah. I really don't want and finally I I thought, well, um This would be the coolest lifetime movie ever. I, <laughs> <laughs> I know this is, I I always feel like it's like some crazy story. Uh <laughs> It's your your life is a sublime song. Like I don't practice Santeria. Yeah, yeah, it you know? is. <laughs> so I, I had this long hair that I, I needed for my my spirit, uh-huh. and uh, I wanted to show everybody that I was serious. Uh huh. So I kind of pulled a Mulan and just like wow blah, wow chopped all my hair off. Um, Did you donate it? I did, yeah. Good for you. I did. You. Like, see, again, atheist. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm sure that was a spiritual, <laughs> spiritual awakening. Now, on the mundane plane, uh, <laughs> did, did someone get that hair? Because you're, for those of you that don't see her right now, because it's not a video podcast, you have beautiful hair, oh, like very you. thick. And I'm sure that if I were to pull on it, it wouldn't bounce. But, <laughs> but uh, like, it's so I can only imagine it being like eight times as long as it is now. 
Uh, well, okay, three times as long as it is now. Uh, and some kid just being like, oh my God, cancer was the best thing ever. Like, look what I got. Oh, well, I, if, maybe if they're a I weird might be Alice missing fan. it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, yeah, I cut it wow. all off. Um, I got disowned. You got disowned? Yeah. Wow. Have you been repossessed? Or no? Wow. Oh, bad, bad choice of words. <laughs> but have you been re-owned or um, they brought you back? Or? Yeah. Okay. After a few years, wow. Um, everything was fine. But for for a hot minute. Yeah. Uh, and my mom said some things that honestly, I'm kind of like just now starting to forgive her for. Sure. But. Um, Man, don't fuck with people's uh, ticket to heaven. That, yeah, that is yeah. a really powerful thing for some. She folks. was like, "You need to get out of my house because you've disrespected the gods, and I don't Ooh. want your bad juju on me." She actually used those words. No. Okay. Well, because like you know, white people say that shit all the time, and it's like, oh, you know, that's an actual phrase, right? You know, but like, okay. Yeah. No, she so. not. She oh, not wow. say those actual words. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. Dang. Okay. So. This new ageism stuff. Yes. Yeah, you're like, no, okay, I can, I can, I can see that, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, her name's Jane Roberts. I I did a deep dive on this, and I got really lost amongst the muck. I found out that like Wicca, and I'm gonna piss off at least two thirds of our eight listeners. Um, I found out that Wicca was kind of popularized by a guy. Uh, who had previously been an underwater demolitions expert in World War II for the British. Um, and a whole bunch of people come, come back from World War II in Britain, and they're looking for something, and they get into, like, Satanism. They create Wicca. Uh, they, they get into this New Ages. Like, post-World War II, um, it's almost like, because uh, you had the lost generation after World War I, and they just got really fucking drunk. Um, and it was right after, like, Houdini had died anyway. So um, there was um, – actually, he might, I forget exactly when he died. But he was busting up seances left and right, pointing them out to be frauds, right? So they couldn't get into that so much. Um, so they just got really drunk. Uh, but after World War II, there's enough distance and people are like, eh, you do what you want to do, man. It's fine. Like, we're not going to – we don't care. Just don't scare the horses. And a lot of people got into this. And so, uh, dear Jane – um, like I said, she, she was using a Ouija board. Now, after World War II, this New Age movement um, took off uh, because I think part of it's because the churches got bombed to shit, too. Like, I do think that, like, when you destroy... Because the churches were built on top of former pagan temples, typically. And former pagan temples were built on top of uh, usually some sort of natural phenomena that made people go, whoa, what's that? You know, uh, when I, I took kids to Sicily this last year, um, and it was really cool because we looked, we went to a, um, uh, we were in Taormina and we looked at a, a ancient Greek uh, theater that had then become a Latin arena, a Roman arena, which had then become a Christian crypt. So you just got literal layers of stuff. Yeah. And uh, what was cool was it, the backdrop of it was Mount Etna. <laughs> like, holy shit. Right. And so I, I had the kids sit down and I said, OK, now I want you to look. I mean, number one, the acoustics of this place are amazing. I said, but I want you to look and pretend that like all these ruins of the theater aren't there. And what are you looking at? And they all were like, well, Mount Etna. I said, wouldn't that be enough to just come and sit down and watch it blow up sometimes and just watch it like that would give you a sense of awe and wonder. And it did. And then people were like, and while we're looking there, our attention's focused there. Let's build a theater because the theater was to Dionysus and he's the god of wine and madness and, and parties. So now you start to try to assign 
belief to it and you try to it's just a natural phenomenon that you're you know looking at that is awesome on its own and then we create these religious structures on top of that and then the next group comes in and they do and the next group comes in and they so these churches got blown to shit uh and so i think in some ways and this is as as woo as i will get that spiritual energy was diffuse people didn't have a place to specifically go anymore um they had ruins to go to uh, and so their willingness to believe in that same thing, I think, was just as diffuse because the actual physical embodiment of it was rubble. So their, their faith was shaken. And a lot of people were looking for alternatives to the standard churches that they'd grown used to. Now, this book, uh, the Seth, uh, what did I call it? It was the, the Seth material, um, really became a seminal work in the New Age philosophies. And it's considered a, quote, channeled work. So she wrote the whole thing. And I have kind of my own history with that kind of stuff. Now, I didn't do it, but I was married to someone who, who did. Um, I don't I don't really want to tell her dirty laundry or, or any of her stuff because she's not here to defend herself. But, um, but it was a channeled work. And uh, to me, the word work is really important in there because in pro wrestling, work is where you're trying to get one over on everyone. Uh, so it's carnival. Um, but the being, Seth... Uh, channeled through her at plenty of gatherings for an audience and was a, quote, energy personality essence no longer focused in physical matter. In the 60s, people's credulity was much higher, I guess, because, okay. <laughs> I'm sure you could find some people nowadays who'd buy it. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> like, I, there's a whole section on Amazon you could find of that I, I met a woman who went on an ayahuasca retreat in Peru and and she had this mantra that she told me she said you got to be humble in the jungle and the problem is I'm a comedian so I immediately said I was like oh were you walking around at night and she said yeah I said did you stumble in the jungle <laughs> and then another comic was there with me too and then we just started going back and forth and back and thank god she was drunk and and he was bigger than me so she was hitting him um but <laughs> But, uh, and it turns out she was like a 16th generation shaman's daughter. People make shit up. Like you could, it's like the 1800s. You could literally call yourself anything and just move one town over and everybody would be like, oh my God, he is the emperor of Paraguay. You know, you're like, (laughs) cool. But um, it was a channeled work. uh, And like I said, um, he was an energy personality essence, no longer focused in physical matter. I think people would have called that a soul. Or spirit, I don't, I don't know, but this sounds bigger and, and takes up more print. Um, he'd completed his earthly reincarnations. Apparently, there's a limit uh, or there's a goal. I, I don't know. Maybe it's like a Kickstarter. Um, and now he was coming to them from a different plane of existence. She wrote all this down and talked about this. Now, I mention this because this kind of self-oriented personal growth-based spirituality was a really popular thing in the 1960s and would grow throughout the 1970s. And this isn't meant as a dig so much as a correlative connection, okay? Owsley Acid also comes onto the scene in 1963. Do you know what Owsley Acid is? I don't. So somebody developed LSD in 38, okay? Uh, and the, uh, the, the patent for it expired in 1963. Uh, the CIA was using uh, acid LSD in the MK Ultra program in the 1950s. Now, that was a, a experiment that they would run on people without telling them what they were doing to them. 
So they dosed people without telling them, and they were seeing if they could find some sort of truth serum or mind control serum to like create sleeper agents and stuff. It was really wild shit. Uh, do you know who Aldous Huxley is? Yes. Okay, he was huge on acid. Um, uh, Ken Kesey? No. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah, okay. He had a group called the Merry Pranksters, and they, they drove a bus. And this is where you start to get into the psychedelic movement. Um, and Timothy Leary? Yes. Okay. Uh, these guys are huge advocates of acid, <clears throat> especially after 1963. Um, Owsley was the guy who kind of really popularized it. He gave it to the Beatles. He gave it to a lot of people. Like, it was his acid. Like, everyone's like, oh, wow. That's like, he, he became synonymous with acid in the same way Band Aid became synonymous, synonymous with adhesive bandage, right? Um, so this is all happening in the United States and the United Kingdom specifically. Those two places are really getting into acid. Um, those two places are really getting into this new age spiritualism. Um, in France, they had existentialism, partly because I think they felt the physical occupation of the Nazis. Um, Germany, they had their own shit. They were divided by two countries. You know, they've got a wall growing up between them because of those two countries. Um, but England and America uh, were just remote enough from it. And again, England gotten bombed all to hell, but America hadn't. But they were just remote enough from it that acid and new age spiritualism was really, really ramping up. Um, also, Doctor Strange, have you heard of him? Uh, yeah, once yeah. or twice. Yeah, those comic books and the comics for, uh, there's a group called S.H.I.E.L.D., Mm-hmm. Nick Fury, right? Back when he was white. Um, so the original <laughs> Nick Fury was white and he had like the, the gray sideburns. and, and a, We a, don't talk a, about him anymore. No. but uh, <laughs> It's Sammy now. <laughs> yes, it is. You're damn right. Um, uh, but yeah, Doctor Strange and S.H.I.E.L.D. comics were really big too at the same time because they both dealt with psychedelics. So psychedelia is a genre of advertising. Um, and, uh, when I taught comic books, cause I taught comic books for a semester, I talked about the seventies and it was so much fun cause I'd show them like advertising from the seventies. And it was like the dumbest things were be connected to the psychedelic thing. So did you ever watch, um, Sesame Street? Yeah. So you remember one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. You remember they pulled the thing and it goes through uh-huh. and that art. Yeah. That's wild in the advertising. Like I, I found one for like carnival cruises. <laughs> like and they didn't say take a trip, which I was like, how do you miss that? <laughs> like, but uh, yeah, it's 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 huge. So the Seth material covers a lot of ground, okay, because it is a groundbreaking book in its own genre, right? It set the stage for all the others to come. Um, it talked about the origin of the universe, talked about what God is. It called God um, all that is, or the multi-dimensional God, which you're just adding adjectives. Um, it talked about guardian spirits. It talked about reincarnation, the higher self, multidimensional reality, the purpose of life, a lot more stuff. Now, by the late 60s, you get into um, Star Trek and sci-fi really starts to kind of ramp up as well. Um, Now, what I'm zooming in here on, though, is this. Uh, The Seth materials talked a lot about the people experiencing and creating realities of their own. Not a shared objective truth on any level. Okay, so your reality is completely yours and you have your spirit guardians and you experience your origin of the universe in a very different way than I did Um, and at different times. And maybe you're an older spirit. I mean, there's all this stuff that's very self-focused. There was still a shared objective truth, but that shared objective truth, according to the Seth Chronicles, was on a higher plane. 
So we're all trying to get there. And this is where Ed would point out like, oh, this is white people trying to understand Buddhism without actually having read about it. Um, and I think that's fair. Uh, this idea of our higher selves starts to be a thing. Um, which I know the Mormons already had a version of that in their religion, but uh, but now it's becoming very popularized. It's not just tied to one cosmology. Um, down here on Earth, on this plane, we're all in our own realities, and sometimes those realities bump into each other. Um, Jane Roberts, the one who channeled Seth, said, quote, if you want to change your world, you must first change your thoughts, expectations, and beliefs. Which, I mean, on the surface, that's I mean that could be on a poster today. You know, that could really be something that Ar Under Armour uses to advertise next, you know. Um, now, she's writing these books, and she's influencing a legion of other writers and, and spiritualists, ministers, college students, people who are dissatisfied with the way things are going on um, all throughout the 60s and 70s. Um, Jim Henson read and, again, admitted that he didn't get it, this book. But he also said, but I really liked it. But I'm going to point something out here. Um, Israel is experiencing its own state as something that needs to be defended from anywhere between three to six Arab nations who are committed to something called the Khartoum Resolution. Okay, And that happened in 1967, which is almost 20 years after the creation of the state of Israel. Okay, They're called the three no's. Number one, no peace with Israel. Number two, no recognition of Israel. And number three, no negotiations with Israel. Okay, So the reality that Israel is dealing with is that they are recognized by the UN as a nation. They are a member state of the United Nations. And yet they're under constant threat of being attacked, wiped out, and certainly terrorized. Okay, That's their reality. Palestine is in the same place, but it's not called that anymore. But there are Palestinians. And they're experiencing their own state as something that needs to be defended and liberated from a foreign intruder. They sometimes get help from anywhere between three to six Arab nations in the, in the area, uh, who don't necessarily see them as equals, by the way, uh, but as the enemy of their enemy. Both Israel and Palestine worship the same God. Okay? If you look in the Quran, it's a continuation of the Bible and, and of uh, the, the, the Torah. Okay, it's all the same God. It's all the same desert. I have my own thoughts as to why that is. Uh, speaking to a fellow atheist, I don't feel so bad about. Uh, I don't think I'm being reductive. I'm just being mildly anthropological. The sun was really, really harsh in the desert. Uh, and you'd better not step out of line because you'll die. Uh, and so you had a, a very harsh God with very specific rules. And they all seem to blossom from that. Um, but both worship the same God who gives them both a claim to the same land in different books and at different times. So in many ways, you're seeing geopolitically what Jane Roberts is talking about. Multidimensional, occupying the same space in the same plane, but different selves. You literally have like a transparency of one state over another. Um... And everybody is dead sure that their transparency is the one that exists. So here's Jim Henson, right? He's snowed in at an airport hotel. Um, he's writing the beginnings of the Dark Crystal. And he is steeped in a philosophy that he doesn't understand. <laughs> and he's living at the same time uh, as, as two states 
uh, are existing simultaneously as one. Okay, he's living while this is going on. And yet they exist at the expense of each other too, right? They, they exist mutually and they cannot mutually exist. And both of those things are happening all at once. It's very like, um, it's like it's a binary choice that we've chosen both on, which you shouldn't be able to do. It's, uh, I think my mom did uh, research and she found, uh, there's a thing called a, I think it was a proton computer or, or something like that, where you don't have binary ones and zeros, you have it existing. It's, it's almost like Schrodinger's computer, like it just exists uh, as both. So uh, he's, you know, uh, he's also uh, a guy who tried LSD. And he said that it didn't have any effect on him at all, which <laughs> I'm like, of course it didn't. The guy who works with Muppets, LSD didn't fuck with him. <laughs> he was already there. Um, the guy who imagined and manifested Muppets into existence. <laughs> uh, the guy who like sitting there, he's like, okay, so here's what we want to do. We're going to film this thing from like my head up, but my arm is going to be the mouth and my other arm is going to hold a wand and you'll never see me. And the whole world will exist without legs. Like, I mean, if you look at what Muppets are, it's that. Um, his biography later on would actually say, quote, of course it didn't. Quote, Jim was already there. <laughs> so um, so that's, that's, that's the, the soup in which he is sitting while he's writing this 25-page this treatment, which uh, I don't know if you've ever read, like, original drafts of things, uh, like for screenplays and stuff. Sometimes they have absolutely nothing to do with what the movie becomes. Um, have you ever heard of uh, the movie Dirty Dancing? Yeah. Okay. Have you ever heard of Dirty Dancing 2? Uh, the, is that Havana Nights? Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I don't know if you know this, but the guy who wrote it is now the host for uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Wow. Yeah. And he wrote it so that he would have a scene in there where he was doing some hot dance with some hot Cuban woman. Okay. <laughs> He wrote the script. There is literally nothing in the the uh, screenplay that actually got turned into a movie at all that resembles anything that he wrote. So, like, this stuff happens all the time. It's like, we like your idea. We're going to change 100% of it now because <laughs> we bought the rights to it. So, uh, Jim Henson makes Brian Froud. I think it's Froud or Froud. Someone can correct me uh, on, on the Twitter uh, at Duh Harmony. Um... This guy was a fantasy illustrator, um, and he turned into a concept artist for this movie. Um, and he made him and David O'Dell, the screenplay writer, uh, read the same book. So, hey guys, here's a 25-page treatment. Now, before you do it, I want you to read Jane Roberts. Which, like, I'm all for people giving me book suggestions, but, like, not for me to do my job. Like, my, my boss once gave me a book on pedagogy, and I... I'm too busy teaching to read a book on pedagogy, which probably isn't a good thing. But it clearly, this book had an impact on him to the point where he's foisting it upon two other people who are ostensibly very busy, despite not getting it. Yeah, well, clearly, because he didn't let them exist in their own realities. It's <laughs> a good point. It's a good point. Uh, Odell even pointed to a very specific line that Agra, you remember Agra? Oh, she's my favorite. She's everybody's favorite. She's everybody's <laughs> favorite. It's the hair for you, isn't it? It's, uh, it's the, okay, she, like, yeah. twice in the movie, she did this weird maneuver yeah. where she's like, you know, she's at somebody's throat and then she pauses so uh-huh. that she can squat down. And she grunt squats. Grunt squats as if she's just like taking a shit right there. 
on the floor. <laughs> she might have. That was my, she's my favorite for sure. <laughs> she's rad. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, because I, when I first saw this, I was a young lad, but then I saw it again when uh, I got my own VCR and VHS player. You know, I found it at Suncoast Videos. That used to exist. Um, but uh, she had nipples. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to be no, the one do to it. bring it up. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's like, fine. Agra has no business being that thick. <laughs> She's got ass. Yeah. Oh yeah. my god. Yeah. yeah. She got the floaty ass too. Like it exists in orbit of her. You yeah. Know? <laughs> like there was someone in charge of just like puppeteering the ass. <laughs> That's why I was glad with the remake they didn't have like someone like J-Lo play Agra. You know, they didn't like try to update it. They're like, no, no, no. We're going to keep her frumpy, you know? Yeah. But yeah, she had nipples. And I was just like, okay. Yeah. She's also missing an eye that she can like pull out and look at uh-huh. people with, right? Yes, yeah. Um, she got the horns, mm-hmm. uh, which you don't see very well, but her thumbs do the same horn thing off the nail. Oh, okay. It's kind of cool. Um, but, uh, he says, Odell says that there's a specific line that Agra said about Jen's master. So remember, she talks to Jen, uh, about his master and he he says that his master died because that's like his third most favorite line to say. (laughs) Uh, and her response is, you know, well, you know, she asks, where's your master? You know, blah, blah. And he says, well, he's dead. She's like, could be anywhere then. Yes. Yeah. Odell specifically said that, uh, if he hadn't read Roberts's book, he never would have come up with that line. And to me, it's such a throwaway line. Yeah, and it didn't really end up uh, coming back right? to play in the plot. Right. It's one of those things that you would think like, oh, I'm going to remember that for later, but it, uh-huh. it didn't really end up paying off. Yeah. But it I, was interesting. Yeah. I wonder if us both being atheists, because normally I do this this show with a Catholic, um, which I didn't realize at the time was such a fun layer to add to it, um, <laughs> because we both are still very dogmatic. But he's got a ticket to heaven as a result. And I'm just sitting here going, yeah, I don't know why I follow these rules. Uh, <laughs> but um, whatchamacallit, uh, that line, to me, has no meaning. I wonder if to somebody who has a spirituality, uh, a cosmology, um, that, that that would have more meaning, right? But I just love, but at the same time, like, her just being so flippant. Well, it could be anywhere then. And she's still grumpy. You yeah. know, I liked it. Um, so here's Odell on Hansen's vision. Okay, or Henson's vision, I'm sorry. Um, he says, quote, The spiritual kernel of the dark crystal is heavily influenced by Seth. Like, he's naming it. I've always felt that the idea of perfect being split into a good mystic part and an evil materialistic part, which are reunited after a long separation, is Jim's response to the teachings of that book. Jim admitted that he didn't understand the book himself and that everyone would understand it or not understand it in their own way. But he thought it opened up a whole different way of looking at reality, which I think was one of his goals in the making of The Dark Crystal. Number one, I think it's like the eighth time we've pointed out that Jim Henson said, I don't really get this stuff. (laughs) But like, I don't know. It just Did you ever see Close Encounters of the Third Kind? No. Okay, there's a scene in it where um, a guy gets zapped. But it's also a very boring movie. It was 1970s. They had a much slower pacing to things and... And all that, and I grew up on Star Wars, so I just, I, you know, I, I always liked things that were faster and more intense, as George Lucas was demanding. Um, but uh, there's this one part where um, oh, Richard Dreyfus is in it. Uh, do you know Richard Dreyfus? Yes. Okay. Cool. Uh, he he is um, making a sculpture out of mashed potatoes, and he sculpts Devil's Table, Devil's Mountain. Um. You know what you want to talk yeah, about? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a. Uh... Oh shit! I used to live in Wyoming. Oh, okay. So it's it's there. It's it's a plateau, right? Devil's Tower. Devil's Tower. Thank you. 
Um, and he sculpts it while everybody else is eating. And then he's just sitting there, like, mesmerized. Because he's gotten zapped by aliens and stuff. as They put programs into his head, I guess. It's never fully explained. Um, but uh, and his wife is looking over and he goes, this means something. But he's never sure what. And that, to me, is such a 1970s approach to stuff. Oh, it's deep. I don't, I don't get it, but it's deep. You know, I, I don't really want to go to school for this, but it's deep. You know, um, now I'd like to call attention to the phrase that he used. He says uh, that everyone would understand it or not understand it in their own way. Again, the in their own way. It's this refrain that you see in the seventies. It's it's not just you do you, I'ma do me. It's you and I exist in totally different realities. And we're lucky if we bump into each other, or sometimes that bumping into each other is not good, but that's the existence of the 70s. And at the same time, you're seeing that actually playing out in in what the British call the Middle East, uh, what I, as a geographer, would call uh, Southwest Asia. Um, The the original draft of the the Dark Crystal wildly differs from what we see on the screen, okay? Uh, I don't really care enough about it to discuss it over much, but... Um, it's, it's not what gets through to the edits and, and the movie that we see is, is what gets through. I will say that it was very evil versus good, uh, malevolent. These were the elements that were still in it. A malevolent race still takes over from a powerful group of wise people. Uh, and ultimately the two races are reunified. Now, again, George Lucas was not a student of geopolitics. He was not a student of the book that he insisted his friends read. Um, but I do find it interesting that that narrative shows up in the dark crystal while the world is watching this area where you've got this struggle between two forces and people absolutely pick sides now jim henson did however like a lot of white guys with beards in the 70s who probably smelled of patchouli um borrowed heavily from eastern mysticism going on essentially from persia through india so even further to the east. Now, I, I don't know how much you know about your uh, geography. Um, do you know the area that's called the Middle East? Um, I mean, I could point it to you right, on a map. Right, Okay. So can you name a couple countries that are in it? Uh, sure. Uh, Jordan, Iraq, Iran. Right. Now, that's the kicker. Iran's not part of that. Oh, is it not? It's not. So the Middle East stops at Iraq. And then you get into Persia. Okay. And then you get farther east. And you, it, but a lot of people think the Middle East is essentially just the Arab-speaking world. So they'll extend the Middle East all the way to Afghanistan, which is on the other side of Iran, uh, and they'll extend it all the way through Morocco, which is you know like a, an ocean away. Um, but the Middle East is specifically this area that used to be uh, the British protectorate. Okay, and and again, this is why I don't mind calling it Southwest Asia. Um, I think when you get to Iran, you're still in Southwest Asia. By the time you get to Afghanistan, you are in Central Asia. Um, but, uh, there's this Eastern mysticism that, that Europeans and guys in the seventies really liked, um, that went from Persia through India. And you have a bunch of different empires historically there that had a bunch of different takes on different religions. They also had Islam overlaying some of it. They also had Hindu overlaying some of it, but there's a lot of, uh, other religions going on too. You had the Zoroastrians, you had Jainism, you had all kinds of stuff going on in these areas. Um, The world that they live on, which is never mentioned on screen, but it's a part of a lot of the production, like it was in all the notes, was called Thra. T-H-R-A-A, I want to say? I think it's 1A. Is it? Okay, Thra. Um, It was originally called Mithra. 
Do you know of Mithra? It was a it was a god in the east. Jen was supposed to be blue. That sounds very uh, Hindu religion, right? Yeah. And he's thin, and if you start looking at his features, you're like, oh, they were avataring him. Not like the Thunder Smurfs, but like actual. He's like, got st- uh, streaks of blue in his hair. He does. He absolutely does, uh, and very pretty blue too. Like it's it's it kind of uh, luminescent. Uh, the podlings were essentially human potatoes. <laughs> like like they actually were inspired by potatoes. And they're like, well, what if a potato was a person? And that's what the podlings were. And I love the podlings. Um, they they spoke a language that sounded Slavic to the point where people who spoke Slavic languages would be kind of like we are with the minions. We're like, I know that word, you know, uh, but it wouldn't make sense as a sentence, right? Um and they lived like good peasants should. Now, all of this is Eastern. It's not British. It's Eastern. It's, it's, it's um, I'm going to say Oriental in the classic term, like to the East. Like um, Henson absorbed them into a more Mediterranean, all these ideas, he, he absorbs them into a more Mediterranean idea of good versus evil. Um, because that is very much a Mediterranean culture thing. That's very much... Um, the the Bronze Age religions in the Mediterranean area. Now that includes Judaism, Christianity, Islam, but it also includes uh, uh, a bunch of cults and religions that the uh, the Romans celebrated, that the Gauls celebrated, that the Bedouins celebrated. All these different religions. There was a lot of good versus evil stuff going on. The Greek pantheon, stuff like that. You had the Titans and the gods. You had this constant struggle, right? Whereas if you go further east you get into this karmic wheel. You get into this, not necessarily a struggle between forces, but a struggle within a force, a personal struggle, right? So you're on this karmic wheel and you're trying to keep a balance or you're trying to find a balance and you're trying to work your way through it. Whereas in the Mediterranean, we're fighting people. (laughs) Um, And uh, I've got my own thoughts as to why that is. Uh, It has to do a lot with like the scarcity of resources. Um, But if you look at the Gartham, what color are they? I like a dark mm-hmm. brown, black. Mm-hmm. And the Landstriders? They're light greenish mm-hmm. cream colored. Yeah, yeah. So black and white. Yeah. Good and evil, right? A typical American hodgepodge of stuff that he didn't spend very much time researching. He's like, these are good ideas, you know? Um, for instance, the Skeksis, okay, the big bird beaked creatures. They were part raptor, part dinosaur, part. I don't know what. Uh, there were 10 of them. Okay. 10. Makes sense. It's a good number. We have 10 fingers. Boom. 10 skexes. But then they're like, and they embody the seven deadly sins. That was the original conception. It's like, bro, you just said 10. What are we going to do? And we'll double up. Uh, we'll overlap. We'll repeat. It'll be, it'll be fine. You know? And if you look at them at the dinner party. You know, they're, you know, getting very gluttonous, right? And you've got Chamberlain, who's very ambitious, avarice, you know, and, and that kind of stuff. And and the general is wrath, you know, and you, you've got a lot of that, you know. Um, so, but it's there. It's there. And since the Skeksis and the Mystics are karmic opposites, if such a thing could exist, uh, and to, to Jim Henson's world of the of Thra, they did, um, they represent the virtue mirror image of their Skeksis power, uh, counterpoints. I was going to say PowerPoints, but that's not quite right. <laughs> Counterparts. Um, so the Skeksis represent all the seven deadly sins. Whatever the opposite of gluttony would be, 
there's a mystic that represents that. Whatever the opposite of avarice would be, there's a mystic opposite of that, and on and on and on. Right? You might remember uh, you start with the emperor dying, mm -hmm. and then it goes quickly to the mystic's leader dying. Both leaders die, right? Which to me was very Moses-y too, because he dies before he gets to the promised land. So the leaders die before the final reconciliation happens. Yeah. I found that fascinating. Uh, now the Skeksis were part of this world. They were of this world. They were concerned with power, with domination. Um, they were always jockeying for position, always scheming. They're very predatory, um, intensely selfish. Yeah, the last thing the emperor says before mm -hmm. he dies is, oh, I'm still in power. And then yes. Like, kind of... Yeah, and then disintegrates. Yeah. Literally disintegrates. Like, he's holding on to power until then. And then immediately they start jockeying for position. And Chamberlain, I think he says, it's time to make my move. He does, yeah. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> it's time to make my move. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, uh, and he calls somebody spithead, which I'm like, okay, it's kind of for kids, but not, you know. Um but uh, they live in a contrived and a constructed world. Like, it is a world... You Clearly, you see their, their castle. It's clearly something that was constructed and built. It didn't just occur naturally that way, right? And it still represents their very angular and thinned out and, and kind of desiccated way of life. Mystics were more as ascetic? Is that the word? Ascetic, yeah. Asceticism? Uh, okay. Yeah. So as ascetics are people that do without... Right, uh, they purge themselves of all their materialistic urges. Right, um, they were connected to the natural world. They were unconcerned with hierarchies, uh, and they aimed themselves at self-knowledge and knowledge of the world beyond the self. Uh, not even self-mastery, by the way. And you remember, some of them are like counting on a weird-ass abacus, and you know they're meditators. There's one who I think is doing like kind of Tibetan art, you know, where he's like doing sand paintings and stuff. Um, and they're almost completely divorced from the self, okay? And they're also really into geometry. That's a thing. Like, you look at all the patterns, there are even patterns on their faces. Oh, yeah. You know? Um, so that's, that's the differences, right? And if you look at where they lived, they lived in caves. Maybe they hollowed stuff out. Maybe they made a courtyard. But they didn't do too much to alter the world. They just kind of found the world that they were in, you know? So you have this, this, these polar opposites, and, and Henson very much wanted that. Again, I would point out that you have two groups of people living in the same land who have very mutually exclusive ways of life that uh, run into each other into conflict. Uh, now, in, in the world, uh, in Thra, there's Skeksis and Mystics. Um, in, uh, in, in the world, you've got the Palestinians and the Israelis, right? And uh, they, they exist at the expense of each other. Um, so now, it's April to December of 1981. Okay, and they're filming all of this at the Elstree Studios in London, which is where they did a lot of uh, Episode 5 of Star Wars, Dagobah. Um, this means that this was being written, edited, and rewritten, and what on, from 1975 to 1981. So for six years, it's getting tagged, it's getting changed. Uh, and here's where that history seeps in and collides with the philosophy that he found very attractive. Okay, um, Here's what's been happening. Okay, uh, it would be in the news on some level, although it's it's not possible to determine how much he had access to it. Uh, but it was on the headlines on the newspapers, and back then people would see newspapers. Um, it was in the zeitgeist while he was designing this movie. It would have been on the radio. It would have been on the television when you read the news, when you hear the news, and stuff like that. Okay, now I'm going to avoid saying terrorists. 
okay, and assassination and other such loaded terms as best as I can. Um, I'm simply going to stick to Palestinian fighters and Israeli soldiers. Um, and even that kind of makes me a little bit uncomfortable because I'm already using different words for what they're doing. Um, and it's not because I don't want to take a stand. I, I absolutely have my own thoughts on this. But it kind of gets back to what Henson was thinking and what philosophy was bouncing around in his head. Okay, um, But I will point this out. A soldier has the backing of a government, uh, of an institution, and fighters are people who are fighting for a cause. Okay, Whether either of them are on the right side or wrong side is, is for other people to decide. Again, I have my own thoughts. Um, it's still a problematic distinction for me, but I'm, I'm going to stick to that. Um, but, uh, and actually, that's actually a perfect place to stop for this episode. Um, and next episode, I'm going to get into a lot more of the nitty gritty history of what was happening as he was writing it and stuff like that. And hopefully we'll see um, how this obviated itself in the movies. So at this point, normally what I do is I ask Ed, uh, or he asks me, uh, so far, what have you gleaned? So far, mm-hmm. what have I gleaned? Mm-hmm. Um, well, oh man, you're really putting it on me. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, there's, um, I think it's interesting that even though there are uh, two worlds existing simultaneously in mm-hmm. the Dark Crystal that Jim Henson chooses to make one evil and one good. Yeah. Um, especially since uh, at the end of the film, the point of the prophecy is to join the two halves as they were. Um, and that's what is meant to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if he's leaving it up to the viewers to interpret uh, which side's evil, which side's good as an allegory of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Yeah, I don't think he was that conscious of it, uh, which is kind of a rolling theme through this show is that uh, arthurial intent doesn't mean shit. Uh, you know, most people don't try to make an allegory and they accidentally make an allegory. Yeah. Um, and, you know, very often they stumble over backward into it because they're not fully educated on it, you know. Um, or because they're reliving a trauma that they went through, like in Tolkien's case. Um, but uh, but I do think it's interesting, you're right, that, that they, at the end, they become one, which means what happens to the good and what happens to the evil? Yeah. You know, uh, which I, I think Jane Roberts would have a response to that. Good and evil exist down here. And they become one and they become beings of light. So it's possible that they transcended the mm-hmm. ideas of good and evil. Which, I don't know about you, but I've always had trouble with the idea of transcending good and evil. Because it, it sounds like that those are just trite things. And I'm like, no, there are people living and dying because of that. So, Well, if you know. believe there's something beyond... Yeah, I guess that would help. Sometimes <laughs> this world can seem trite, I guess. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, oh, that must be nice. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, do you have anything that you would like to plug? That I would like to plug. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I already plugged my my trivia, but I'll, I'll, I'll plug do it, it again. I, plug it again. Hell yeah. yeah. Uh, Yolo Brewing every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Yours truly hosting anyone's guests. That is our weekly pub quiz. It's super fun. I write all the questions myself, hmm. and uh, then I can be the one uh, asking you stuff. That'd be cool. <laughs> I like being in that role. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like being asked stuff too. I like I like not knowing things and having to, to ask others. Um, do you think you're gonna uh, like? Are there topics that you guys do in your trivia or no? Um, we do just general knowledge. Mm-hmm. I try to to mix it up, especially since 
you know, I have my areas of expertise and I have mm-hmm. things that I don't know. So I like to make sure that I'm kind of catering to everyone. Um, nice. So I try to keep it as, as broad and uh, varied as possible. Okay. So no dark crystal questions then? Um, maybe. Yeah. That'd be cool. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Cool. Well, uh, can we find you anywhere on social medias or no? Or you're pretty um, much landlocked. You can find me on Instagram at uh, Daashdo. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's D A T A S H D O H, all separated by periods. Okay. So dat dot ash dot do. Do. All right. Nice. Uh, I'm. uh, You can find me at duh harmony. There's two H's. Duh and then harmony on the Twitter and also on the Instagram. Um, You can find Ed at e h blaylock on the Twitter. You can find uh, a geek history of time at geek history time on on the Twitter. Um, We actually had somebody correct us on a previous episode. I wanted to call that out. Uh, a listener named Derek, uh, who actually was one of our guests, uh, and he taught us all about um, pinball. Uh, he pointed out to us that during our episode on Captain America and the Great Depression, that uh, I erroneously had said that uh, Roosevelt promised uh, a chicken in every pot, when in fact it was Hoover. So I was off by one president. So I wanted to give a shout out to Derek for looking that, uh, looking that up for us and uh, correcting me. Um, I know there are plenty of other mistakes I've made, and uh, given that I'm talking about Israel and Palestine, uh, it very well might be that I I get things completely wrong, or you just think I'm an ideologue going the wrong way. Um, Please do not hesitate to flame uh, Ed at E.H. Blaylock um, (laughs) and leave me alone. Uh, No, uh, you can hit us up at Geek History Time um, on the Twitter. Uh, also, if you have subjects that you think would be fun to explore, please let us know because we, uh, we're always looking for more stuff to dig into, um, more geeky things to tie to other things um, and, and stuff like that. So, um, All right. Well, uh, for A Geek History of Time, um, I'm Damien Harmony. I'm Ashley Sanders. Uh, and as Ed would say, uh, keep rolling 20s. <laughs>